Well, it's good to be with you today. Smile on your face. Turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. For those who are in children's church through grade 4, you can be dismissed at this time. If you'd like to keep them with you, feel free to do that. We're going to be in the New American Standard today. That's what I'll teach out of. You can find that in the chair around you. I hope that you were in the Word today. If you weren't, uh, this week, have missed your time in the Word, let me encourage you to uh, develop a Bible reading calendar. You can find that on most of your electronic devices. Offer those things. version definitely does. Five or six different versions of Bible reading calendar you can use. Or you can pick one up there in the foyer and uh, read through the Bible in a year. Be in the Word every day. Let me encourage you to continually to do that. Set your heart upon it. Let your mind meditate on it. Take time each day to meditate on what the Word of the Lord would have to say to you. Through His Word, what does it say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply? And then make those those uh, changes as the Lord has empowered you through his Holy Spirit to do just that. God's plan for a healthy church, a study through the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, the glory of the gospel, part 5, the old covenant and the new covenant, 2nd Corinthians 3, starting in verse 9. It's great to be back together in this very, in this very full passage from Paul's letter to the Corinthian church we know as 2nd Corinthians. Look there, pick up in verse 9, we'll read through verse 18. For the ministry, for if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. Verse 10, for indeed what had glory in this case had no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. Verse 11, for if that which fades away was glory, was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. Verse 13, and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because it is removed in Christ. Verse 15, but to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Verse 18, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the image, the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Did you catch that? From glory to glory. We sing that today, that Charles Wesley hymn we sang, the first one we sang, had those very words in it referencing that verse. Paul takes time here to compare the trademarks of the Old and New Testament, and so we have done that. I've told you that we were going to take a little time here because of the very important nature of the Old and New Covenants and understanding how that all works together. And Paul is, as we have pointed out, revealing his heart and his experiences as he instructs the church. In our previous letter that we went through, uh, Paul went about his instruction a little differently. He was dealing with many of, in the church that were rebellious and arrogant, a church that was some trouble, uh, not unlike churches today, a church with some misunderstandings. Not unlike churches today, a church with interpersonal issues, not unlike churches today, and they were extremely obstinate and rude to Paul, throwing off his instruction to them. We're going to see that still a little bit in this letter. Even though Paul had established the church and had been responsible for the presentation of the gospel that had led many of them uh, to come to faith. So in the, the sense of that first letter and the others that came before and in between were direct, they were sorrowful. Uh, he pointed out directly places where their conduct departed from sound doctrine. He gave commands for one problem or another, and he deals with errors regarding division and immorality and conflict resolution. He, he deals with purity and body and marriage and all those things that we talked about there in verse 6 and following. Errors in the church then regarding marriage and divorce. He deals with freedom in Christ and errors regarding Christian liberty. He deals with communion, and he talks about their errors regarding the Lord's table. He deals with errors regarding spiritual gifts, and it takes a long time to go through what was actually going on in the church and how that needed to be changed. He clarified the gospel, the reality of faith, and so he had to deal with errors regarding the, the resurrection. Uh, he desires the church to be generous mater with material things, so he took time to confront some errors regarding money. He's going to take some more time in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 to do that, and so many other things in between. And he had to send Timothy to check on them, and then later he sent Titus. And, and Paul had really reached the end of his physical and spiritual ability to impact the church. He had said what needed to be said in the way that needed to be said. And then he was waiting for the Lord to do the changing, uh, but he knew he was insufficient to the task of any lasting change apart from the Lord's work. He can give the instruction, but the Lord has to work in the church to bring them to the place they need to be brought. And as Paul knew what that would happen, the Lord began to do a work in the Corinthian church. 
and there was the beginning of some positive changes. And so uh, as we move into this letter, uh, we see a change in Paul's approach, uh, a more tender, a more transparent way of dealing with the church. Uh, there are still issues. There's still suspicion uh, on the side of the church. There's still false teachers and gossipers affecting church's attitude towards Paul. There's still some lingering suspicion. So we're going to see Paul deal with those things. And so as we begin this most recent section, starting in chapter 3 and verse 1, he says this, and look back there if you would. Uh, please uh, look there at verse 1. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? In other words, you know, uh, the only thing about me uh, that uh, is worth knowing is you are our letter. You don't need me to come reintroduce myself to you. You don't have to have people talk and speak on my behalf. Here, here's what he says. Listen, a very, very, a very intimate way of approaching it. You're our letter written on our hearts, known and read by all men. Being manifested that you are a letter of Christ cared for by us. Written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tables of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Verse 4, such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we're adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So you can kind of see this way he's approaching now, a very, a very uh, tender way to approach um, you know, as they're, as they're giving him a hard time, as they're coming at him with suspicion and all that, he, he says, listen, do we have to do this again? Do I have to tell you who I am? Do you have to have people speak on my behalf? You're, my, you're our letter. Paul says, you know, I'm not adequate in myself to do anything for the kingdom, but God has made me adequate as a servant of the new covenant. He says, hey, look, I'm equipped by God to bring you the covenant of grace, freedom from the law through the works of Christ on the cross. I'm confident in doing that, and that's what I've done. And he says, you're our letter. And this is really Paul's personal story. I mean, Paul, uh, is, he talks about where he's been and where he is now. And although he doesn't give the story here, this is his background, coming from the old covenant to the new. And as we saw over the last two weeks, Paul wasn't disparaging God's law. He wasn't saying that it wasn't important. As we saw last time, he said that the old covenant came with glory, but it was a fading glory. But he calls the old covenant the ministry of death and letters engraved on stones. And we saw at length that, uh, that whole section last time, so we won't do it again. You can catch up with that online if you wish. But, so what is he referring to? He's just referring again to the Ten Commandments, God's moral law. Everything about God's moral law boiled down to Ten Commands. And Paul debunks this thinking that some will still have, that by trying to keep the moral law, they're going to end up redeemed. That's his whole point. It's like, listen, you're adding a bunch of things to this, or you're thinking uh, somehow that along with receiving Christ as your Savior, you'll have to do some stuff, or in order to receive Christ as your Savior, you have to keep this, this God's moral law, you have to keep the, the, uh, uh, the ceremonial law, you have to keep all of those kinds of things. And so Paul just takes that to task. The moral law can import life uh, to mortal man because he can never keep it. And then we looked at the tendency of people who won't accept the correct valuation of their condition. We looked at how you got saved in the Old Testament, how you got saved in the New Testament, and it comes to the point where a person has to accept the correct evaluation of their own condition, that they can't keep it, and they're going to need God to give mercy and grace, and that's always how it's been. But people who won't accept that condition, what do they do? Well, they emphasize the ceremonial side, right? They emphasize the keeping of rules. People think, we'll become righteous by maintaining the ceremonies, and we'll keep all the law and all the new moons, and, and that's precisely Paul's story, see? And we find it in a number of places, but most completely, uh, we find it in, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. And I'd like you to look there. This is Paul's story here, and I've got to take some, a few minutes to go through this. Uh, so hold your, hold your finger here in uh, 2 Corinthians 3. Turn to, first, uh, just to Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, and we'll take just a few minutes here. And this is the story of Paul's background as he comes tenderly to the church and says, Listen, I'm not uh, adequate to do anything. I'm just, I've just been equipped adequately to give you the new covenant, to teach you. Uh, what it means to be saved. The, the gospel is what I'm equipped to. Uh, but this is, how, this is not where Paul was, but it's where he is now. Now, verse 1, it says in Philippians chapter 3, it says, finally, see that? So last thing he's going to say, starting into the last parts he's going to say to this Philippian church, he says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard to you. So pause right there. In other words, I've written this next section before. You've heard me talk about this before, and I'm getting ready to say it to you, and that's no big deal for me, and it protects you. You can kind of see the church reading the letter, and they're saying, okay, Paul, we've, we've read lots of things from you. Uh, we've heard you say lots of things. What, what do you want to say again that will protect us? And then he goes right into it. Look at verse 2. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. 
So if you're a note taker, this is uh, one of your stops here. Three different ways to describe those who would ascribe to and teach salvation through the keeping of the law. This is pretty harsh wording. Paul knew that the Old Covenant came with glory, but anybody preaching the Old Covenant as a means to salvation or as a means of attaining moral standing was the enemy of the gospel. And Paul didn't mince any words. And he reserves the worst possible language to describe those that espouse that effort. This is Paul's background now. And as he comes to Philippi, as he writes to the Philippian church, he's writing much the same thing. He had to write it to every church. Because the tendency is, if you're not going to accept your correct, uh, correct moral evaluation of yourself, you're not going to cast yourself on the mercy of God and the grace of God, then you're just going to try to be good. You're going to try to do the right thing and make sure you do enough right things that God somehow will have to recognize that you're worthy. So Paul uses very harsh language here. He says three different times he says, beware. Uh, that's the Greek ver uh, verb, present active imperative, blepete. It's a form of to see. So three times he uses it, uh, present active imperative. So if you want to know uh, if Paul is saying something that you need to do for sure, then when you see it in the imperative, you know that that's the case. So Paul says, watch carefully for, in order to identify and avoid. What? The dogs. Well, <laughs> he's talking about people who are teaching that there's other ways to get to the Lord besides casting yourself on the mercy of God and receiving salvation that comes through Christ. So he just calls them dogs. Now, those, those are packs of dogs that used to run on the street in the evenings, he used a very harsh language to describe those that teach this. Uh, these were dirty, dangerous, unpredictable. They ran the streets during ancient times, doing whatever they wanted to do. Uh, no one could control them. He says you have to be on the lookout for them. You have to watch out for what they're doing. And so he compares them to the worst possible comparison. And then Paul says, watch carefully for, in order to identify and avoid evil workers. Those that taught this manner of righteousness thought their actions were righteous. They thought their actions were beyond reproach. Much like the Pharisee we saw just a couple weeks ago in Luke 18, 11. Remember, the Pharisee's in, he's going to pray, and he says, he stands up, he's praying to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. You know, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. You know, he, he probably would have gone on and on. And the Bible kind of sums up what he's saying. I'm sure he went through his list of, of achievements and all the things that he did on a day-to-day -day basis and so uh, how good he was and all that. And, and this, is, this is what Paul refers to all those who espouse this type of behavior. He just calls them evil workers. They thought of, uh, you know, a lot of their own supposed righteousness, and they would have despised anyone else. And Paul just makes his point clear. You know, when you try to attain righteousness by your own works, whatever it is that you do is evil because it draws attention away from Jesus's completed work on the cross, and then makes that work appear unnecessary. So Paul says, watch out for the dogs, watch out for evil workers, and he says, watch carefully for, in order to identify and avoid false circumcision. So again, you get the context of who he's talking about. And again, a very derisive comment, uh, certainly meant to inflame, uh, identifying anyone who says that one must keep the Mosaic law or the ceremonial or the ritualistic law in order to be saved, to be in the same category. He, he cast, cl classifies it. The false circumcision is the same type of word we see of the deeds that mutilative rituals of false religions would do. So you're not doing what you're supposed to do. You're acting like, you're like, like a false religion of Israel. He goes, beware of those guys who are adding to this. Because people were coming in saying, okay, well, you've believed in Christ, but now you have to be circumcised. Now you have to follow the ceremonial law. Um, you're going to have to go to the temple. You have to do the things, your sacrificial law, all that kind of stuff, throwing that on there. Paul's like, listen, watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for the false circumcision. And then he says this, look at verse 3. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. And that certainly gives us very clear context for both of these verses. So now we know what he's talking about. The act of circumcision was supposed to be a symbol of the heart that was singularly devoted to God, from which sinfulness had been cut away. It was a, a bodily sign of what was supposed to have happened spiritually. But for the unredeemed Jew, the symbol became the reality. See, it wasn't a symbol, it was the reality of their sinlessness, of their, of their uh, meriting God's salvation. And if you're not going to accept the reality of your condition of sinful and bankrupt before the Lord and in need of his mercy and grace, then you're going to major on the symbols. He says, listen, we're, we're the true circumcision. Paul, for Paul, the symbol pointed to the reality of the work of Christ that he did on the cross. Sin had been cut away for good through Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. So he says, we're the true circumcision. Why? Because this is what God intended for it to show on the outside that your heart had been that the sin of your heart had been cut away. And those who receive Christ's work on the cross by faith are the true circumcision. They are truly the, what? People of God. 
identified not by outward marks on the body, but by a new heart, free from the presence, power, guilt, and penalty of sin. So to come along and tell someone, as these false teachers did, that in order to be truly saved, you had to have the outward sign was for Paul the utmost in wickedness. The outward sign never saved. The reality is found in a relationship with God based on Jesus' satisfaction of God's demands. So people who by grace through faith have had the demands of God satisfied through Jesus are living in the new covenant and are identified three ways here in our passage in Philippians. And they'll be familiar to you because, as Paul has said in the beginning of the passage, to write the same thing again is no trouble for me as safeguard for you. So you're going to see very common language. Paul says, I say this to all the churches. These are things that I say all the time. You've heard me say them. You've read that I've said them. So he's going to say them again. This is a repeat along with what to guard against. This is what a true believer knows and understands. Worship is a ministry of the Spirit, and they that worship God worship God that way. They glory, that's an unfading glory, in the work of Christ, and they know that the work of the flesh, trying to obey the letter of the law, kills. So he says, we're the true circumcision, who worship the, uh, in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Worship is a ministry of the Spirit. We saw that already. Paul says that's an identifying trademark of those who are the true circumcision. What's the second part? The glory in Christ. It's an unfading glory, one that doesn't fade away. This new covenant is one that Christ has established in his work on the cross. His blood is the new covenant we saw over and over again in the Gospels. And thirdly, they know that the work of the flesh, trying to obey the letter of the law, kills. Paul says, I put no confidence in the flesh at all. Trying to obey, trying to add to it, whatever it is, I got no confidence in that because the work of the flesh only kills. So, everything he could do externally, he did. Look at verse 4. So this is really Paul's story. I love this part. Okay, no slide. Look, look there in Philippians chapter, uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. <clears throat> Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. So Paul says, listen, these three trademarks identify who we are. Worship is the ministry of the Spirit. We worship God that way. I, we glory in Christ because that's an unfaded glory. What Jesus did on the cross is an unfaded glory. It extends even into eternity. We saw that last week. And third, they know that the work of the flesh, trying to obey the letter of the law, kills. And then he goes right into his story. Here it is. This is why Paul's so adamant about this. Okay? Look at verse 4. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. In other words, if you thought you were good, if you thought that because you kept the ceremonial law and you kept the, uh, the ritualistic law of God and you, you, you thought you kept all the commands of God, even to the minutia, if you thought you did, I far more. Verse 5, circumcised the eighth day, you know, my parents made sure I was marked as redeemed and favored by the Lord. Circumcised on the eighth day, <clears throat> you know, Paul was an eight-day-year-old and said, okay, now I want circumcision. His parents took care of it. Eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, you know, when the kingdom split, my ancestors were on the correct side, okay? We weren't on the ten-tribe side, we were on the two-tribe side, okay? Judah and Benjamin, that's me, so I'm in the right group. As to the law, a Pharisee, you know, nobody kept the minutia of the law better than my group. We lined up the fences to make sure we didn't violate even the smallest jot or tittle of the law, and we made sure we were as far away from it as we possibly could. That's me, Paul says. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And if anyone dared to challenge me on the way to redemption, woe to you. That Paul says, that's me. That was me. And as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. Just in case you didn't understand me, if we're going to get saved by the flesh, if we're going to get saved by the deeds of the law, and if we're going to get saved by human effort and ceremony and ritual and routine and all that stuff, Paul says, I'll put my works up against anybody's. If we're going to get saved by the deeds of the law, if we're going to get saved by human effort and ceremony and ritual and routine and all that stuff, Paul says, I'll do it better. I did it better than anybody. Nobody could stack up to me, okay? I'll put my works up against anybody's. I'll put my knowledge and ancestry and pedigree against anyone's. I'll stack my ability to uphold the minutia of the law against anybody, Paul says. If you're going to put faith in, in the flesh, I could do it far more. And that is, of course, before the law came to life for Paul that we saw just two weeks ago, remember? And on the Damascus road, he saw the risen Lord and his sin became so evident to him. His wickedness and inability in the flesh to do anything that would merit this marvelous God, this glorious God's favor and grace and salvation became abundantly clear to Paul. 
And I would imagine that if you get to see the Lord in all his glorious appearing, that that would be the first thing on your mind. And I think I, you could say, just in general, as you go through the Old and New Testament, anybody who's seen the Shekinah glory of God, first thing on their mind was what? I am so unholy. That's the first thing that is exposed in the, in the glorious light of holiness, right, is un, our unholiness. So up to the very second that the law came to life in Paul's life, and he realized that I can't even stop coveting, let alone something else, uh, Paul thought, if you, want to stack up, if you want to stack up keeping the law, if you want to stack up getting saved by the flesh, if you want to you know, stack up all the routine and all that stuff, you, nobody's going to stack up to me until the moment that he met the Lord on the Damascus Road. And, and all his accomplishments and his so-called piety and his pedigree, he says about those things. Look at verse 7. This is Paul's story now. That's why he's so tender with the church. And he comes and just says, listen, you know, I, I'm not worthy to be recognized by anything. Nobody has to write anything about me except I'm a preacher of the new covenant. Here's verse 7. I love this. But whatever things were gained to me, see it? Those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, verse 8, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and be found, verse 9, in him. And the word gain and the loss in the Greek are just as they sound here. They're wording an accountant would use. Paul says, everything that I thought that was in the profit column actually proved to be in the loss column. In other words, all my assets weren't assets at all. They were all losses. All my pedigree, my background, my keeping of the law, all the things that I persecuted in the church, all that stuff, what I thought was in the credit account, this was going was to move me into the place where the Lord gave me his salvation because I merited it. That, none of that, not even was it not just a wash, it was actually a loss. It was against me. Because it took the focus off what Christ has done and put the focus on what I had done. And then it was a wicked deed. See. Everything I did for my own benefit before God resulted not only in no gain. They weren't just to watch. They put me upside down. See. I was in the loss category. Do you know what it means to be circumcised on the eighth day as far as salvation is concerned? Nothing. Nothing. You know what it means to be of the nation of Israel as far as salvation is concerned? Nothing. And counting on it puts it in the lost column. It makes it wickedness, see? You know what it means to be of the tribe of Benjamin as far as salvation is concerned? Not a thing. You know what it means to be a Hebrew of Hebrews as far as salvation is concerned? Nothing. You know what it means to be a Pharisee keeping the law? Nothing. You know what it means to be a zealous persecutor of the church as far as salvation is concerned? Nothing. And to bring it into today, do you know what it means to be christened, sprinkled, baptized as far as salvation is concerned? Nothing. Do you know what it means to take the bread and the cup of communion as far as salvation is concerned? Nothing. Do you know what it means to pray a corporate prayer, light candles, count rosary beads, cross yourself, or genuflex as far as salvation is concerned? Nothing. See? In Ireland, there's this old monastery. It's a 600-foot stone trail that leads up to it. It's called Krog Patrick. It's Ireland's holy mountain. All through the year, people come to climb Krog Patrick, also known as the Reek. And on Reek Sunday, well, that's the last Sunday in July, which was July 29th of this year, over 25,000 pilgrims climb the Reek. Some do it barefoot as an act of penance. It's held in honor of St. Patrick, who in the year 441 spent 40 days fasting on the mountain. Masses are held at the summit, and there's a small chapel up there. And on the way up, they do other things in ritual and by rote, and they walk around certain carns several times praying, and they do all these kinds of things. Do you know what it means as far as salvation is concerned to climb the mountain barefooted and take mass at the top? Absolutely nothing. In many of the Catholic cathedrals around the world, the faithful walk up on their knees, kissing every step. You earn the righteousness of God and spend less time in purgatory. Do, does it do either of those things? No. Not a chance. Salvation is not by ritual. It's not by race. It's not... Uh, by privilege, salvation is not by tradition, it's not by zeal, it's not by external morality, it's not bestowed by men, it's not bestowed incrementally by graces, it's not paid for by penance, piety, or anything else. None of that is anything. Paul says it's all rubbish. It's, it's, that's a word for the worst of things. It's trash, it's filth, it's refuse. Not only was it not a gain, it was in the lost column. It counted against me. It wasn't just a wash, it was actually against me. Not only was it not gain, it was filth, it was rubbish. And much of what I just mentioned is completely made up, beloved. 
has no basis except in man-made edicts and church councils. That's where they came from. See, Paul says all that, not only did I not have profit, not only was it not just a wash, it was all a loss, and it was just rubbish. The law of God had glory. The law of God has holy, righteous, and good. But using it as a way to redeem yourself, all that effort amounts to just trash. Look at verse 9. Not not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Nothing else has any traction here, see? Paul says, I received what I always wanted. That was righteousness, but I didn't receive it from any of my own efforts. I had to count them all as loss, and they were all filth, and I had to admit that I was completely bankrupt. Nothing in the prophet column, beloved, salvation has always come that way, see? God gave his law to keep us as a schoolmaster, to bring us to faith in Christ. I had to admit that I was completely bankrupt. Paul says, nothing in the prophet column, and then God credited righteousness to me, and it was by grace through faith. See, So that's Paul's story. Paul says, listen, I, you know, I'm passionate about this. Why? Because this is where I was. And it's still today. It's still here today. Now, please turn back, look at 2 Corinthians 3. We saw last time, uh, just to, like Paul repeated to the Philippian church, that the new covenant gives life. It functions through the Spirit. It reveals more of God's glory than the old covenant. We also saw in our previous verses three trademarks of the old covenant, which we saw Paul illustrate at the Philippian church. The old covenant brings death. It, comes, it came with glory, uh, and the glory of the old covenant faded. So we saw all of that um, listed for us, and we went through all of that. If you've missed any of that, I'd love for you to get back uh, online and listen to it. That will be helpful to you. Now, if you look at 2 Corinthians 3, we're going to pick up in verse 9, and still see some uh, compare and contrast statements here. So verse 9, 2 Corinthians 3. For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. Verse 10, for indeed what had glory in this case had no glory, because of the glory that surpasses it. Now we see our fourth trademark of the Old Covenant was a ministry of what? Condemnation. Now we've looked at that at length. Looked at the, uh, that the letter brings uh, death and all that kind of thing. So this just kind of helps add to our understanding of Paul's evaluation of using the law, using the, using, using the ritual, using the ceremony, uh, using the, the sacrificial system as a way of righteousness. Paul says it's a ministry of condemnation. So it's actual diakonia, it's actual uh, ministry, its actual service to people was a service of condemnation. It's a compound Greek noun, catechesis, condemnation, sentence pronounced, an adverse sentence really is the idea, kata against, uh, an adverse sentence, a judge, to judge worthy of punishment. It is the ministry of judging worthy of punishment. All who try to keep it are rendered a service of judgment. They're judged worthy of punishment. You try to keep the law as a means of righteousness. Uh, Paul says it's a ministry of condemnation. In some ways for us, this is a re reiteration, we've seen this, but there's enough difference here for the one who won't admit his position. And really is maximizing all Paul admitted. He himself was maximizing his, his, uh, his pedigree and all his works and, and his education and all the things that he had. If you're maximizing that, then Paul wants to make sure you understand there's the inevitable sentence and it's adverse, it's condemnation. And we know the punishment connected to this condemnation, and in that punishment, again, comes with glory, right? So it's a ministry of condemnation, but that doesn't make it bad, right? The fact that the Lord has the right to judge those who will reject his son is not a bad thing. It comes with glory, doesn't it? Again, you know, punishment, again, comes with glory. It's the glory of God, and we don't you know, stop here too long because we've seen this over and over. But like, like we saw in 2 Corinthians 2, 15 through 16, believers are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and what? Among those who are perishing. And that's a glory to God, isn't it? Uh, believers are supposed to be a, a fragrance of Christ to those who are redeemed and to those who are perishing. See, when people reject the mercy and the grace of God, then they must be measured against his perfect holiness. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. And so this ministry... This diakonia of, of condemnation, a, 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 uh, an adverse sentence, means that God is absolutely holy and is absolutely just, see? And he al he's always faithful to his promises, and that includes his promise of punishment for sin. 
I'm reminded of Joshua's words to Achan after Israel defeated, uh, was defeated at Ai. Do you remember this? God given Joshua a way to discern who'd cause the defeat. You know, Joshua comes down from the mountain. Uh, Israelites got the rear ends handed to him, and uh, they're running back down away from, uh, from those in Ai. And um, uh, it's woe is me. Everybody's, you know, crying out to the Lord. He's like, what? What? Just stop. Right? You would have had the victory, but you didn't have it. Why? Because there was sin here. And so, you know, you have your whole nation of Israel there. I mean, how are you going to find it? You know, you got one person who sinned, it caused, it caused problems for everybody. So it's interesting, this word has always intrigued me. As you read Joshua, perhaps you didn't notice, you, you did if you came and listened to John's teaching as he went through Joshua. But listen, he says, the Lord goes through all of, all of the families, gives them a way to discern who'd cause it, you know, picking out tribes, picking out families, you know, individual families. He gets down to, to Achan's family. And Joshua says to Achan, so he reads through all these millions of people, gets down to the one, okay? And... Uh, my son, I implore you, mark this. What's he say? I implore you to what? Give glory to the Lord. Now, put yourself in Achan's position. All right? You, you got to know something's going to happen. All right? I mean, the Lord has been clear. He's divided all out the tribes. He's got it all down to one family. He's got Achan here. And then he's in front of Joshua, the leader of the whole, the whole group. And he says, to, and the first thing he says to Achan is give glory to the Lord. To the Lord, isn't that? That's an interesting thing for, to ask somebody to say, right? I mean, when I read that, I'm like, wow. I mean, you you think he would say, "Give me a reason why you you blew this," okay? I mean, he did get a chance to tell what happened, okay? But the first thing he says, "Give glory to God," and give praise to Him, and tell me now what you've done. Do not hide it from me. Well, why does he say give glory to God? Why? Because God's all knowing. Out of the millions of people, He noticed. When somebody did exactly what he said not to do, that's a good thing, right? That's amazing. Would we be able to know that? No. Can we get down to the bottom of the truth of a matter? I think we've seen over the last couple of weeks, it's pretty difficult to do that, right? Because men tell different stories and they do what they want to do and, and so do women. So, but the Lord, it, he's not confused by any of that, right? God's all-knowing. He, he wasn't willing to let Israel remain in defeat either. I mean, give glory to God. He wasn't willing that Israel take a beating. But he let them take a beating to show them how sinful, what, sin is. And, and there wasn't anything hidden from him. Give glory to God. You know, he, he's all-knowing. He's not willing to let sin remain in the camp. Give glory to God. Give glory to God because nothing's hidden from him. And it seems on the face of it an odd thing for Joshua to want Achan to do and say. But even in Achan's inevitable punishment, God's glory was on display. God isn't less glorious because he condemns sin. Rather, it puts his glory on display and it makes another attribute even more glorious. Now look at this last part of verse 9. And much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. So not only does this ministry of condemnation abound in glory, this actual service of condemning through the law, showing God's holiness, his righteousness, his purity, that he requires all men to live that way and they cannot do it and you can come to God and then call out on us for his mercy and his grace and receive it. But if you won't, then there's a condemnation, a ministry of condemnation. And then our fourth trademark, much more than does the ministry of righteousness amount in glory. That's our fourth trademark of the new covenant. It's a ministry of righteousness. The old covenant is a ministry of condemnation. The new covenant, ministry of righteousness. And what a marvelous trademark that is. Righteousness, the character or quality of being made right or just. It was formerly spelled right-wiseness, which clearly expresses the meaning. That's to be good over against being evil. It's to be pure over against being filthy. The word or the root, righteousness, just, and justifier, as you were with us in the book of Romans, 60 times just in the letter to the Romans. And we're going to look there just a second to remind ourselves. It's an overflowing, overwhelming uh, trademark. And we're going to mark a few principles that we need to see. Now, just like we looked at this principle in Philippians 3.9, where Paul says, and may, and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own, that won't get you anywhere. What does that get you? That gets you a pronunciation of condemnation. That gets you the ministry of condemnation. A righteousness of my own derived from the law, because no man can keep the law. You only get a sentence pronounced on you. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Top-down righteousness. A new kind of righteousness, see. And we noted these things are things that Paul says he repeats over and over again, and we find a wonderful illustration of the glory of the new covenant ministry of righteousness in Romans 
But now, Paul says, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And that but is a very welcome word, isn't it? But now, over against condemnation, over against the ministry of death, but now takes us right into the present tense. This is very familiar language to us in that the glory of the old covenant has faded and the new covenant glory outshines the old, but now there's this marvelous thing, righteousness that comes from God, not based on derived from the law by me keeping it, but a faith that is through faith in Christ. And when you think about the first three chapters of the letter to the Romans, by the time you get to chapter 3, verse 21, you've had more discussion about wrath and condemnation than you've probably ever had before. So Paul just goes through all of that with him and just says, listen, we're all condemned, all fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter if you were a moral person. It doesn't matter if you were a pagan. It doesn't matter if you were a Jew. It doesn't matter. Everybody has the same starting point. We've all, uh, we've all uh, violated the law of God. See? It's reported that the Roman poet Horace determined to lay down some guidelines for people who were writing tra tragedies in his day. They would write these complex plots and get the hero or heroine into trouble, and then they would call on a god to rescue them. And, and Horace criticized them and, and reported to have said, uh, do not bring a god on the stage unless it's a problem uh, that it would take a god to solve. And when it comes to righteousness and salvation, this is where God has to come on the stage, right? Because it's going to take a god to solve that. Now, when Paul says a righteousness from God made manifest, he's saying, you know, the problem that takes a God to solve is solved. The question that every person tries to answer has an answer. Can a man be right with God? And the answer is what? Yes. How can a man be right with God? Paul says this is how a righteousness from God is revealed from heaven. So God can take any man and make him right with himself. And Paul loves to tell people how God justifies the ungodly, how he in mercy makes people right with himself because that's his own testimony, Right? I had this pedigree, I had this background, I did all these things, I persecuted the church and all that, and that was all in the lost column, and the righteousness that I had came from God, through faith in Christ. Not based on my own works, on the works of the law. Paul loves to tell people how God justifies the ungodly, how he in mercy makes people right with himself. That is the, that's the very foundation of our, own, of our own salvation experience, isn't it? And that's part of the ministry that we have uh, of the Great Commission is telling people how God justifies the ungodly. We start with the bad news and we move to the good news. And I was in the bad news here and then the Lord moved me and gave me good news because he, he justified me. He made me right with him. And that's exactly what we're talking about here. Romans 3.21. But now, right, you know, right now in the, in, the, in, the, in the new now, not the old covenant, trying to keep the law just gets a sentence of condemnation on you, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. First, in order for the ministry of righteousness to be effective, it can't be based on the works of the law. Just very obvious here. Again, law is the old covenant, it's the letter, it's the ceremonies, it's all of that. It can't be based on the works of the law. This new, uh, this righteousness that comes from God isn't based on the works of the law. Paul says, I'm going to repeat this to you, Philippians. It's something I say all the time. What's he saying here to the Romans? The exact same thing. Next part, Romans 3.21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Isaiah said that all the righteousness of man is just a filthy garment. That's the best we can do. So secondly, in order for the ministry of righteousness to be effective, it must be a different kind of righteousness, one on God's terms. Again, a top-down types of righteousness we saw in Philippians. Different kind of righteousness. It's one that's on God's terms. People worry about that, you know. In all parts of the world, they worry about whether they're right with God. And this is a question everybody's asking. Whatever God it is that they embrace, they want to make sure they're right with him. They want to do whatever it takes to make sure that they're on the right terms with God when it comes to the end of their life. This is God's terms, top down. Isaiah 45, 8 says, Drip down, O heavens, from above, and that the clouds pour down righteousness, that the earth open up and salvation bear fruit, and righteousness spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Created what? Righteousness. I'm the one, see? Created righteousness. In order for the ministry of righteousness to be effective, it has to be a comprehensive righteousness. A comprehensive righteousness. Jesus came 
as the utter fulfillment of God's righteousness. He was right with God, totally, absolutely perfect. He always did the Father's will. He always spoke the Father's words. He never sinned a sin or thought an evil thought. He kept all the law, everything perfectly. Comprehensive righteousness, because it's a righteousness that perfectly fulfilled the law. Jesus kept every law of God, and that itself makes it far beyond any righteousness ever generated by men. Men could never do that. It's based on the works of Christ. So how solid is this righteousness that's coming from God? It's very solid. It's based on the righteousness of Christ. That's, what Jesus, that's why Jesus said in Matthew 5.20. He said, um, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. How, how much righteousness did it appear that the scribes and Pharisees had? Pretty high righteousness. Jesus said, that's not even close. Another, another motivation to say, we couldn't even keep the first part, let alone what the Pharisees and scribes gave. You know, scribes and Pharisees had a righteousness. There's a righteousness of men. It just doesn't get them anywhere. Jesus' righteousness was the kind that demonstrated the ability to fulfill the whole law without, without a flaw. It's a comprehensive righteousness because it's a righteousness that died in perfection, fulfilled the penalty of the law. When Jesus went to the cross, he again fulfilled righteousness. God was right because God was holy and he had to punish sin. Again, we saw the glory of God expressed on the cross, didn't we? Because he punished sin. God couldn't just say, well, we'll just throw the whole thing out and we'll just start new. See? God punished sin and it fell on Jesus. And Jesus fully, totally, completely bore the sins of the whole world of every human being that ever lived. And that is something that no man could have ever done, see? And, and he not only did it, but he came out on the other side having conquered death and hell and Satan and sin by rising from the dead. See? And because he lives, you shall live also. So it's a comprehensive righteousness in that it can perfectly keep the law and perfectly satisfy the law, and it's found in Christ. And number four, in order for the ministry of righteousness to be effective, it must last forever. And guess what? Because it's from God, that's exactly what we see. It must last forever. Psalm 119, verse 142, your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness and your law is truth. Your righteousness is how long? Everlasting. Hebrews 9, 12, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, talking about Jesus, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Hebrews 10, 14. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who were sanctified. It's a forever righteousness. So this new covenant is a ministry of righteousness, which is a righteousness that God gives top down. Man's righteousness comes from, from man trying to keep God's old covenant and results in a penalty of death. The ministry of condemnation. God's righteousness in the new covenant, and it's a righteousness that, get, that works its way out of in obedience because it gives power to obey by giving life and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, you can obey my law now because I've made you right with me, and I've given you my Holy Spirit to help you do that. Not because that's going to save you, but because you are saved. Now you can respond to me in obedience. And Paul, by the Holy Spirit, tells us that this righteousness from God is what is available, and that is the kind of righteousness that I'd like. How about you? That's what I'd like to have to be right with God on God's terms. Romans 3.21, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been man manifest, being witnessed, again, by the law and the prophets of weighing saying the Old Testament. And this is something we've talked about before. We don't have to spend a lot of time here. The ministry of righteousness that comes down from God is unchanged. The Old Testament people who came to faith, who, who knew their bankrupt condition, and threw themselves on the mercy of God, received grace, didn't they? Based on what? The future death and resurrection of Christ. They could believe God because God said he would deliver them. He gave them things to do to show that they believed God, but they, that never saved. They looked forward to God's mercy, God's grace. That was what was going to save. And so Paul just says here, he says, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. We saw two weeks ago that when we saw that salvation has always come the same way. This isn't something new. It was revealed to us in the Old Testament. Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as what? Righteousness. So, you know, Amos chapter 5, verse 21, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. We looked at this in Isaiah not that long ago, remember? Uh, verse 22, even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. I'll not even look at the peace offerings of your, of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. 
I will not listen to the sound of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. In other words, righteousness doesn't come from those other things, see? They would think, well, I, we are singing the songs and we're keeping the assemblies and we're giving you the burnt offerings and we're giving you the grain offerings. That's righteousness, right? No, I don't want to hear any of those things. You're relying on those things to make you right with me. And I say, no, don't even bring them to me if that's what you think. You can't be right with me by doing those things. Hebrews 10.4 tells us the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. And the law was only given for one reason, to show us our sin. To be our schoolmaster. To have the ministry of condemnation. You can't keep this. So what am I going to do? I'm going to cast myself on the mercy and the grace of God. Which is what salvation, that's always salvation. It always comes that way. The Old, Old Testament was given to show that people couldn't be righteous on their own. That was the whole reason for Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He told them, you know, this is God's law. This is what you do. But this is what God says, see? He just kept telling them, you know, what God's standard was. Why? So they could keep God's standard? No. They, could, they couldn't keep God's standard, see? If they'd responded uh, right to that Sermon on the Mount, they would have said, well, we can't keep God's standard. And he would have said, exactly, and that's why I'm here. And that's precisely what I'm here. The Old Testament law didn't make people righteous. It just showed them how sinful they were. And, and so they would throw themselves on the mercy of God. And that was the reason for the mercy seat on top of the ark, right? Between the law of God, and, which no one could keep, and the holy God who would punish sin. And what was in between? The mercy seat. By the way of the shedding of blood, looking forward to the perfect sacrifice. About out of time. So as, as we close... For some of us who know Christ and have known him for a long time, this most recent series in 2 Corinthians 3 might seem like a series that really goes back to basics. It might be that we get a little inattentive and we wonder a little bit because we're so familiar with the terms and we're familiar with the gospel of Jesus, but what a sad commentary it would be on how easy it is to drift away from that initial joy that we knew when we discovered these wonderful truths. Right? I've been refreshed so much this last couple weeks. Because for some of you, see, you know, these truths are at the end of a lifelong search, a life filled with ritual and self-effort, and a life that left you exhausted and disillusioned. For some, these truths are the most fantastic and thrilling things you've ever known. And perhaps there are some of them who are attending with us today who will hear these truths for the first time and realize that this is what they've been searching for their whole life. How about you? Would you bow with me just for a moment? Have you, have you rejected the mercy and the grace of God? You'll know you have if you've been imagining yourself and your deeds as good enough for God's approval. If you imagine that any part of your life that you've lived or the parts that you're hoping God will look at anyway will be good enough for God's approval, then you have rejected the mercy and grace of God. And you fall into the same category as many, many millions before. Same category certainly as the Old Testament, same category certainly as the first century church and Paul, people Paul has to deal with, same category as the modern, some in the modern church today. Imagining yourself and the deeds that you do, it's somehow putting you in a position where you're good enough for God's approval. And if that's what you're, if that's what you're relying on, your own deeds to, to mark you as good enough for God's approval, then you'll be measured against God's perfect holiness. Make no mistake. Whatever it is that you're imagining is good enough to receive God's approval, that will be used to be measured against God's perfect holiness. Scripture says... You're under a curse. You're condemned already. And so this ministry of condemnation means that God is absolutely holy and he's perfectly just and he's always faithful to his promises and that includes his promise of punishment for sin which he will do beginning at your death for all eternity. Please realize that trying to do things and keep certain commands and going through rituals, those things never saved. The reality is found in a relationship with God based on Jesus' satisfaction of God's commands and demands. Paul says, everything that I thought I was, that I thought was in the prophet column, actually proved to be in the lost column, and you can put yourself in that very same situation. 
whatever it is that you're relying on that thinks you'll be, you think you'll be good enough to meet God's approval, just put it in the loss column. It's not even a wash. It's an actual, it's against you. It's a debit. Paul says, everything I thought was profit actually was in the loss. In other words, all my assets weren't assets. They were losses. Everything I did for my own benefit before God resulted not only in no gain, they weren't just a wash, they put me upside down, and I was under a curse. And who will deliver me from this body of death? See, nothing gains traction here. If you rely on your own goodness, it's compared to God's holiness. And you are under a curse, and you'll find yourself under the ministry of condemnation. Paul says, I received what I always wanted. I got righteousness, but I didn't receive it from any of my own effort. I count, had to count them all as loss, and they were all rubbish and all filth, and that's what you have to do, see. You have to look at all the good things you think are stacking up. They're going to make you acceptable to God, and you've got to say, okay, that's all rubbish because I've got to measure by God's holiness, and I'll never make it. And not only will I never make it, everything I thought was good enough was just wickedness, and it counts against me because somehow I thought I could be holy enough to be right with God when he already sent his son to deliver me from my sin. Paul said, I wanted righteousness, but I didn't get it from my own efforts. I had to count them lost. They were all rubbish, all filth, and I had to admit that I was completely bankrupt, nothing in the profit column. And then, and then, God credited righteousness to me, and it was by grace through faith. And that, beloved, is how you are right with God. And there's no other way. Father, thank you for this time that we could be in your word today. Thank you for uh, this detour, as it were, to Philippians and Romans that help us understand Paul's background as he comes so tenderly to the church and says he's not worthy to be recognized for anything and not adequate in anything to accomplish anything of eternity, eternal value in the church, except he's been made adequate to present to them the gospel, this new covenant, where righteousness comes from God, top down, to those who cast themselves on God's mercy, who count all their good works to be as rubbish and cast themselves on the mercy of God and, and claim to be bankrupt, needing of salvation, not able to work and get it, not able to be good and get it, but to ask God and by faith receive. Except a man be born again, he will not see the kingdom of heaven. John 3.3 3, to Nicodemus from Jesus. Confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, believe in your heart God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. Romans 10.9 it's very simple, beloved. Count all your works as rubbish. Recognize any good works you did did not put you uh, in a place where you could merit God's favor. It only put you in a place where you received condemnation because you thought that you could be good enough for a holy God after he sent his son to die in your place. And that, beloved, is why punishment will be for all eternity. The offense to God is enormous. And the sin is, has a lot greater value against you than you imagine. So don't be deceived. Call your own on the name of the Lord now. Cast yourself on at his mercy and he will receive you because of what Christ has done. If you prayed that today, before you leave, will you please let me know that you did that? Take the card from the chair in front of you on the back of that. Put your name on the front on the back of that card. I prayed and received Christ as my Savior today. It'd be our joy to know that and to help you on your way, on your journey to get to know him better. Fulfill the purpose for which you were created. We thank you today for the blessing of fellowship. We thank you for the joy of giving, for the joy of singing together and praying and casting ourselves before you in humility. And Lord, I pray that just, just what we're doing corporately here today will just be part of our regular life on, on a weekday basis. Help us to grow more and more in the image of Christ, reprints of him. Pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.